Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And so loving yourself fiercely and never apologizing for the boundaries you need to maintain so that you can be your whole self. Because that's what we need more people in this world really standing in their power so we can get the change that we absolutely need. Hey everyone, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Dr. Jolene Brighton. She's a naturopathic physician and functional medicine practitioner who has been featured by countless high-profile media outlets, including Good Morning America, The New York Post, The Huffington Post, Cosmopolitan, and Forbes, which should come as no surprise given that she's a best-selling author who's racked up an incredible list of credentials that includes degrees in chemistry, nutrition science, and clinical nutrition. The focus on nutrition I found pretty interesting. What was mm -hmm. it that drew you to nutrition in such a big way? Oh gosh, it really started with my own personal journey, like so many of us, right? So I was a kid who was pretty sick, a lot of digestive issues, and it was a decade of struggling. I would literally vomit after most meals because mm. I had such bad reflux. Whoa. And it got to the point where doctors were like, well, we think she has an eating disorder, or we think she's How seeking. How old are you at this point? So at this point where they decided to kind of throw in the towel, I was around 12, uh, 12 years old. Whoa. And yeah, so I'd been struggling for quite some time, and it wasn't until I was 17 that H. pylori had mm. been discovered and finally made its way into clinical practice. And so my doctor was like, "You have, you, uh, we need to test you. Lo and behold, I had this stomach infection the entire time. And so in that, mm -hmm. there's a whole course of treatment you have to go through, antibiotics. And I asked my doctor about changing my diet. <clears throat> and he actually said to me, you know, that doesn't do anything for heartburn. It's not going to help you at all. You need to take this proton pump inhibitor for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I'm like, okay, hold up. Firstly, I'm 17. I'm not going to take a pill every day then I get on birth control. So that's kind of funny. Um, but in that, I also was asking my doctor about like, you know, I started doing some research. I'm like, it's not been studied in someone as young as me. And also the research wasn't done on women. It was done on men. And I started to make this connection that like, if I ate refined carbs and a bunch of acidic foods like tomato sauce and drinking orange juice and like lots of sugar, I would get really bad heartburn and feel awful. So I started using food to really modulate my own symptoms. And it was through that that I figured out like there's a lot of power in food in terms of how it was not only affecting my digestion, how it was affecting my mood, my energy. And so at this time I was actually a dental assistant. So I started in dentistry at 16 years old. 
studying dance ministry. Yeah, this is the back backstory most people don't know about. I dropped out of high school, started Whoa. working in a dental office. Why did you drop out of high school? I was really bored. I was gonna say, bored out of your mind. Bored. I'm guessing at some point you had to start feeling pretty isolated. If the doctors are like, oh, there's nothing we can do. Yeah. You have an eating disorder that would get pretty hard to deal with. Totally. So, you know, there was there was boredom. I was bullied a lot, but it was also that like what I are you just being bullied around. Well, my hair was one thing. Um I also grew up in poverty. So, I didn't have the shoes. I didn't have the the Stussy sweatshirt that everybody had. I couldn't go on the trips that my friends went on, even field trips and you know, the other part of it is that I grew up in a household where I was told like I was quite frankly told I better find a man to marry to take care Ooh. of me because I'm not smart enough to go to college and I'm not actually smart enough um, to do anything else. And so it was a lot of that of like, why stay in high school? I'm not gonna be able to go to college. I don't have money to go to college. And I, my parents were telling me, you have to find a job and then you're gonna have to find a man. Like this is your formula for success. And uh, that's why I ended up going into dentistry because I could be self-sustainable and I could actually take care of myself. So this whole idea of like finding a man to take care of me, I was silently rejecting that. And I was like, that's not gonna happen. That's not my jam. So yeah, I went into dentistry. I, I was always fascinated with health. I'm really great with my hands. And I very much, you know, saw this as an opportunity. So I found a pathway in which I could become a registered dental assistant. So my first medical license was at age 18. And it wasn't until I moved to the central coast of California, just because I wanted to live by the beach, that I was working for two dentists who pulled me in their office one day. I thought I was in trouble. And they were like, what are you doing with your life? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? Like, I'm a registered dental assistant. I've accomplished my goal. And they're like, you need to go to college. Like, you're too smart to be doing this. And that was the first time anybody really had sat me down and been like, you have to go to college. Like, you're just, you're too smart. You're wasting your life. And at that point, I'm 21 and I'm like, I'm too old to go back to college. I'm too old <laughs> to go to college. But then I did. And here I am now. Um, and that's the, you know, winding backstory. And I decided well, to study nutrition because of my own journey. Hmm. That is super interesting. One, so when you're dropping out of high school, are you recognizing that you're bored? And if you're recognizing that you're bored, why did you think you were bored if you didn't think you were smart? Mm, isn't that weird? So, I mean, as you're saying that and framing that way, isn't it weird that, like, that we can compartmentalize these things in our mind where I'm like, I'm so bored, I'm in AP classes and I don't have to study and I'm bored. And I'm not saying that to be braggy. I think that's kind of, that's an issue with the high school system mm. overall. Um, and so I actually, I left high school, became, and I went into homeschooling. And in a matter of months, I had accumulated enough credits to be able to graduate. But they said to me, you can't, like in the state of California, we can't allow you to graduate until you're 17 and a half. And so at that point, that's when I was like, well, I'm just not doing anything anymore. And I ended up taking the California proficiency exam. So while I'm here, I'm a, I am a high school graduate, but when I'm in any other state, I, it's, it's really? not a legit thing. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's actually super interesting. Did you have to get emancipated? No, I didn't get emancipated. There's like no way my parents would have fought me tooth and nail. I grew they up in a, fought you. Yeah, in a very uh, 
very abusive and very controlling household. And it was very much of like women are basically men. You're here to serve men, uh, so to speak. So, no. How did you begin to rewrite that narrative? I love that you use that language, actually. That's exact language that I use with my patients all the time is that these are just stories, right? They're stories that we've been told. They're Mm. stories that we can choose to continue narrating or we can choose to rewrite that. And I remember being around seven was the first time that I was like, I think I'm smarter than my parents. Like, in, and when I don't, I think what they're telling me is not true. Now, mind you, I was born to two teenagers. So as I'm growing up, they're growing up and they're developing and they can't help but repeat the patterns that their parents had laid down for them. I mean, I have a lot of compassion for them, although I don't have a relationship with them because that's the healthiest thing for me. But in that, I was, you know, grew up in a really religious household. Contradictions drive my brain crazy. So, and there were some times that I would speak at a turn and I'd be met with physical abuse for saying that. And I think a big part of my superpower, my strength is grit. And that's a muscle I've always exercised. And I think that's important for people to understand is that, you know, your, your personality, your mindset, these traits, like you can actually work them just like you work your physical body. And I think it's easier in health for people to be like, oh, I'm going to change my diet. I'm going to change my fitness routine. It is way more difficult to change your mindset, to change your outlook, to call yourself out on your own bullshit. And you have to, I mean, really that's like the rocket fuel, the secret sauce to healing. Like if you want to be a whole healed being, like your mindset is everything. I ask my patients this actually, like on our intake forms of like, do you believe you can heal? Do you believe like you can achieve the things that you're, you're wanting to achieve and who in your life supports you? And if you've got those three things in place, I know you're going to be able to heal. And I see people when they have this support, when they're like laundry list of people who can support me, they're making change in like six months time. I mean, things that they've struggled for sometimes, you know, decades with. And so, you know, I would say, you know, it's going back to your question, really like starting at seven is when I started to wake up. And I very much believe that I had to go through the childhood I had to go to, to, to wake up faster. Like I was here, I'm here to do specific work in this world and I had to wake up faster. I couldn't be lulled through people who take care of me and everything being handed to me and going through and then having like the crisis at 30. Like I had to have my crisis early on. And I realized around 14 that I had to escape my family and I had to escape all of this. And part of that, had to, I had to become very complacent in the religion. And so stop speaking up and speaking out. Even though in my mind, I was like, I don't agree with any of this, but I need to survive. Like, and at 16, that's when I was really like, I have to survive. I have to buckle down. I have to get my plan in order and share it with no one so that I can make sure that I can do what I need to do. And at 17 and a half, I believe it's 17 and a half is when my parents got a divorce. They decided to separate after an escalation of extreme physical violence and At that point, that's when I was like, this is my out. And I had to go into raising my brother and sister at that age. Thankfully, I did have that job. And so, you know, there were times where we would wake up and my mom wouldn't be in the house and we wouldn't know where she was for, you know, she would just be traveling somewhere. And I had to pay the bills and get food and make sure my brother and sister got to school. And, you know, with all of that, one tactic 
that has always helped me is that I would actually have my entire catalog of things I wanted to explore in my brain and things I wanted to just spend thinking time about. So I'd go in and just go into my brain and while people are talking to me, just having my thoughts, making my plans, just thinking like, and this is a practice I still hold today where I always carve out time to have space to think and just have my thinking time and to not be in that constant state of go. Mm. Yeah, that is uh, one good strategy. Two, that is a really rough way to grow up, obviously, but it seems to have had some pretty profound echoes in your life that are wildly beneficial to other people. Your quest to help people is pretty extraordinary from working in the teen teen homeless shelter, which I thought was Mm -hmm. really interesting. So as you're going through that process and you're realizing that you have to begin to distance yourself, one thing that people really, really struggle with is when they have a toxic relationship in their life, but it's someone that is an important role, like a mother or a father. How did you create that space? Mm. So... You know, the thing is, I will say, is that I think they created the space a bit for me. Like, these are the two people that hands down should absolutely love me, no question, and protect me in this life. And these were the two people I had to fear the most and that I had to always be on guard with. So um, for people familiar with ACE scores, I am 9 out of 10. Especially the ACE scores. So these are adverse childhood experiences Mm. that are predictive for disease, chronic illness, and psychological issues. I'm kind of... I ask you how much you think that has impacted your health. Mm-hmm. My first endoscopy, uh, they told me that my stomach looked like a 60-year-old's stomach. It was so inflamed. Wow. I had chronic gastritis. They were like, this is not something you see in a child. Well, this is a child who's literally having a hard time digesting what's in her environment. So very much impacted my health. Like. When I got diagnosed with autoimmune disease after the birth of my son, it's like going through grief. There is definitely this whole formula of like, reject it, deny it, uh, you know, hate it, be angry, accept it. And in all of that, I remember there's this moment where I was like, well, of course, like, of course, like you developed autoimmune condition in which your body is turning on, is attacking itself. Like we've had all of this negative programming body turning on itself, you know, people that you love turning on themselves. And I've always looked at these things as an opportunity. So, you know, before we started recording, we talked about my son having pandas, pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disorder that's triggered by strep. And so the most classical definitions, the research going back a couple of decades is strep, which is a bacterium. However, as we see more research coming out, It looks like any infectious agent can trigger this, just like other autoimmune conditions as well. And so this affects the brain. And um, it's not like, as I, you know, I talk about these things kind of casually, but people who were following me on Instagram while I was in Paris, that was, we call it the break, the great Instagram breakdown. Whereas on a live and I was like, I am like sunshine, rainbows, unicorns, la, 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 la. And then I just lost it. And I was like, 90% of my day sucks. Like, let me tell you what's really going on here. And, um, which was so healing in itself. And I think... Were you... I want to get in your head for that moment. Yeah. I didn't know this happened. So (laughs) you're... You're on a live and you're like, you know what? I need to present a brave front. I need to, uh, you know, do... 
the typical thing of presenting the best side of myself and then mm -hmm. midway through you're like, I'm gonna call myself on my own bullshit here and you allowed that to happen or did it catch you off guard? Like, how did no, you? No, I very much, I just, I remember having a moment sitting there and thinking, what are you doing right now? Like you are modeling an unhealthy like adaptation right now. Like this is not healthy and I don't, and like I'm- BSing is not healthy? BSing is not healthy. And there's one thing to compartmentalize. Like this is something I'm really good at of like, okay, I'm having an emotion, put it on a shelf. I'll come back to it later. Mm -hmm. I learned early on in life, you better come back to it. Otherwise I call it the closet, you know, like the dirty closet that people shove stuff in. And one day you're going to be like, I'm going to, I'm going to compartmentalize it. And then the closet door opens and you're like, oh, now it's worse than that one thing that I put away. So, you know, I was on this live and it essentially, I, I, I knew I was being fake. And I don't want to be that because I think that's unhealthy. I think it's the messaging we've gotten a lot as women in, from society is always smile, be a good girl, do what you're told, don't make anyone uncomfortable. So I didn't want to model that. Like I realized like, okay, I have influence here and I don't want people to know that, okay, I'm stuck in Paris, my kid has a chronic illness and here I am faking it, right? And I think that is, you know, the power of social media is it can connect us. I mean. I have women from around the world that are part of my community. Like that's tremendous. And yet it also has the power to make us feel really bad should we allow it. And I think we all have to check ourselves of like, how are we showing up in the world? Are we showing up in a way that serves or are we showing up in a way that really feeds that whole machine and that programming of like not being enough, having to pretend, having to be this certain person. So, you know, as I was on this live, I just was like, you know what, this is what's going on. And I just let it out. And with that came emotions. I hate, I hate to cry in front of people. This is definitely, this is still a throwback to my childhood of where I'm like, you have to be strong, you have to be stoic. I mean, I think I probably didn't smile for like several years of my childhood. It was just like poker face was my nickname because I'm like, show no emotion. Because if you show emotion, that's weakness, someone will get in. So here's my phone sitting in front of me, my husband's on the other side of it and he's like, should, like gesture, should I pour you a glass of wine? Or like, what, what's that? And he's like, oh my God, I've never seen you just cry. And I'm like, but this is what I was feeling and this was the truth of what was going on. What was so amazing from that is how many women wrote in, their child has a chronic illness, their child has autism, their child you know, has Down syndrome, their child also has pandas. And realizing how many people are in pain and how many people are struggling and how many people you know, have these limiting beliefs and, th and then see the highlight reel on social media and then start writing that story and continue writing that story of I'm the only one failing, I'm the only one not enough. Like we all feel like we're failing at some point. If you don't, you're probably not doing big scary things. So but we, all, we all have these insecurities and some people are better at hiding them than others. Don't judge them if they're doing that because there might be a reason or they might not be ready. I mean, there's a lot of stuff from my past that's been coming up and I've been working through and I'm like, I'm not ready to share these things because I don't know how to share it in a way that respects my boundaries and who I am and how to share this in a way that serves people as well. And so that's the other thing is that we can't just be like the black hole of emotions either. So that's not what I'm saying. Don't go on there and be like, oh, let me just break down. But does that help give you insight into like what was going Very on? Very much so. This is really interesting to me because I think that the, 
the body and the mind are so connected. Oh, absolutely. And there's no way to sort of tease one out from the other. And so it, it's like this, we try to pull them apart and conceptualize them as very different things. And certainly when I was growing up, the notion of mental health was like mm. such a crazy stigma. Oh, so true. And so it was like that only further reinforced this notion that they're two very separate things. And I think only now, like especially with functional medicine, are things really becoming to get back together and people are asking, what is the root cause of this? Mm -hmm. And so looking at that and like that's why I was so fascinated by that you've gone so deep on nutrition mm -hmm. because that to me is where a lot of this stuff begins or certainly is exacerbated. So hearing you be able to talk as eloquently about hormonal dysregulation as you're able to talk about, well, let me tell you the emotional toll that things take, that to me I think is is sort of the ultimate destination of functional medicine is bringing it all back together, looking at the body as a system mm -hmm. and that you know, sort of dysregulation in any part of the system can cause weird outcomes in places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. And so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about your son's pandas is I wanna know like, how are you treating that? Like what mm -hmm. are the protocols? So autoimmune to me is beyond yeah. fascinating. <laughs> it expresses itself in a thousand different ways. You never know, like for me, if I eat poorly, I mm -hmm. start to itch and I get like skin irritation. Mm -hmm. My wife won't get that at all, but she'll yeah. get brutal cramps and excruciating pain, but I don't get that. Yeah. So it's like how all of this stuff manifests itself is pretty intriguing. So are you using diet? What are other things oh, yeah. you're looking at <laughs> to treat that? Yeah. So, you know, it's really funny is that um, you'll hear people really push against this food is medicine idea. Really? I know, right? You're like, wait, like, did you think this through? And so every food that you eat becomes every cell in your body, should you absorb it, right? And um, to understand, I think, and I hope it's in my lifetime, that we're gonna be moving away from this macronutrient, micronutrient talk and argument and really into food is communication. Mm. Food, so if like we look- signaling molecules, you mean. Right. Yeah, and, but if you think about it from a biological and evolutionary perspective, what forms first? The tube, the gut. It's the way we actually interact with our environment. It's how we can signal to our environment or to our body that the environment is safe or it's mm -hmm. dangerous. Think about what babies do. For early on, everything's going in the mouth. It's all communicating to the tube. So when, you know, scientists come out and say, oh, well, you know, the, the gut is the second brain, I'm like, it's always been the first catch up. And so in all of that, food is absolutely fundamental. I mean, people, the, the thing that I usually say, especially like when I hear a doctor say, oh, food has no um, impact on health, food is not medicine, you'll hear these things. And I have to remind people, are they an expert in nutrition? Have they studied nutrition? No, then their opinion's just an opinion. It's not actually an expert opinion. Well, they are an expert in the arena of medicine, their forte isn't food. You need to talk to a dietitian, a nutritionist, somebody else who's actually studied this. So with my son, absolutely, we're using food. And it's so interesting for you to say, you know, the way that you and your wife respond is so different when you eat certain foods. Because this is where science is like, oh, wait a minute. Like, okay, so I get glutened. I have extreme joint pain. A few days later, I'm not moving. My husband's the canary in the coal mine because he gets gluten and within a couple hours, he has a migraine. Mm. So I know if he has a migraine, I'm gonna be hitting the turmeric because <laughs> it's coming for me. And so we respond differently. Really and, fast. Yeah. Turmeric, how does that help? 
Oh, so turmeric can help with the NF-kappa-B pathway in modulating inflammation. So it's a great anti-inflammatory. I actually, in my book, have what I call the upgraded uh, turmeric tea, which is tons of healthy fats. It's great for the brain, great for gut motility, uh, really important for building hormones. But with turmeric, I will sometimes throw a whole root in the blender and make like turmeric shots with like lemon juice and um, we'll get some ginger going, maybe an orange. Mm. I also love to grate it into a pan with butter so it's absorbed better with fat. So I'll grate it into a pan with butter, a little bit of pepper, pepper black pepper also helps absorption, saute it a bit, crack some eggs in it and just, you know, sunny side up, fry them in that. That That's like my favorite way to eat it. (laughs) So turmeric is great. It's great for the brain. It's great for the gut. It's great for modulating inflammation. I think it's important to preface and say that inflammation is not all bad. Like we need Mm. inflammation. Um, We need our immune system to do what it's designed to do. We just don't need it getting all hot and bothered like it can with autoimmunity. So with myself and with my son, we absolutely use food. So no gluten for him in particular. Uh, he can't do dairy and sugar. So, Those inflame him. Oh, sugar's so bad. So bad. Um, it was, I mean, that's part of when we went to Paris, what did this kid get? I mean, so we pulled back some supplements because I was like, we're traveling for a week. We don't, we're going to keep the probiotic. We don't need the vitamin D and fish oil. It's going to be okay. Mm, except those three things are great at modulating the immune system. So I pull those. And I'm like, we're in Paris. Let's have gelato. My child has like a psychiatric breakdown. Um, and even once we figured out it was pandas, if he got into any sugar, things got so much worse mm. for him. So for him, sugar's no go. Um, but, you know, I don't like to focus on what not to eat. And so very much my focus is let's bring in so much great quality food that you don't feel deprived and you don't feel like, oh, you know, I'm like, I, I don't get to eat. Nobody ever wants to go gluten-free. Like it's, it's delicious. Yet we have to recognize that in our country, it's a privilege. I mean, it's great privilege that we can pick and choose what we want to eat. And we have, I mean, never in history we've had such access to food. I mean, here we are talking about turmeric. That was not around when I was a kid. So with my son and with myself, we focus a lot on high quality produce and high quality protein high quality fats. So can you give us um, some in each category? Yeah. No, cruciferous vegetables, always part of the playlist daily. Um, we love broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. Just yesterday, him and I were on Instagram eating uh, raw cabbage. Great for when you fly because it helps with liver detoxification. I actually, that's the thing when you fly. Oh my goodness. So I did a D I did a, a toxin panel. And I did my toxins, was like, oh, not too bad. I wonder what happens when I travel. I go traveling and I came back and with that test, my glyphosate, the metabolites for rocket fuel, for pesticides. Now I grow a lot of my own food and I have had a chemical free yard um, and my house is non-toxic chemicals for, for 12 years now. So to see all of this, I'm like, wow, what is that? That's being in airplanes, that's sleeping on mattresses in hotels, that's walking around where like hotels spraying glyphosate and these other chemicals around. And so we actually get exposed to a lot of environmental toxins on planes. And that's why we love cruciferous vegetables. And if you're someone, so as you were saying, like, so if your partner has digestive issues, like cruciferous vegetables, especially raw, that's not going to work for you. You can actually select for sprouts instead. 
So this is a really economical and really nutrient-dense um, approach. Broccoli sprouts, if you have about a quarter cup of them, it's equivalent to what over two pounds of broccoli itself can give you in terms of sulforaphane and uh, the molecules that eventually become DIM, and DIM helps with liver detoxification, especially important for estrogen metabolism. So whether you're a man or a woman, we all have estrogen, we want to get it into the right metabolites. So we have 2, 4, and 16 hydroxyestrone. Now, there's not like the healthiest form. There's like uh, the best and then not so good. And the ones that cause tissue growth and cramps and breast tenderness. And so eating cruciferous vegetables helps us get in, into the healthiest pathways as possible, which is really important when you talk about you know, the fact that we're exposed to all these xenoestrogens, I mean, just going to the grocery and touching that receipt and you're getting BPA exposure. And these xenoestrogens can dock on our receptors and mess with our hormones. And so... What do you think about soy? Oh, so, you know, I'm not a fan of, you know, products that are, that basically we've been messing with a whole lot. And that comes from like my, you know, my time in... Uh, school and working working in like recombinant DNA technology and working with like how do we modify the food supply and the thing I really take issue with is when we talk GMO we talk glyphosate we talk about these chemicals in our environment is how so often people are like well there's no evidence that they're not safe so they're fine well the absence of evidence is just absence of evidence it doesn't it's not a gold stamp approval of like safety and that yet it's always falls on the consumer's lap to prove it's not safe. Really, I mean, the average person, it's enough to navigate food. It's enough to navigate their day-to-day -day life to also have this extra layer on. And so there's several layers to this. One, it's generally GMO. So we wanna be aware of that. I think eating fermented organic soy can work for some people. You have to test what is true for you. In everything I say, view it through the lens of what's true for you. Because I'll say a lot of true stuff, but bio-individually speaking, may not be true for you. Mm. Now, the other thing is that I give a lot of pause when it comes to monoculture crops and things that are stripping the earth of not only nutrients, but decimating the microbiome. And so the earth has its own microbiome, which is great when grass-fed cows are there eating the grass, pooping, we've got chickens coming in, like the bugs are flourishing, less chemicals. And this is really important for people to understand that like, yeah, we talk a lot about how mom's microbiome becomes baby's microbiome. So mom's gut health is so important. But mama earth's microbiome is also becoming your microbiome. And that's also important. We have to consider that. So, you know, when it comes to soy, it can work for some people. It is one of the top allergens recognized up there with like wheat, shellfish, peanuts. So that's why it can have an immune response in some people. So I say test what's true for you and try to get organic when it comes to that. And don't do what I did in the 90s when we all thought soy was so great. And I was like, I'm going to barbecue tofu and I'm going to drink my soy milk and like soy everything. And so we have to be really aware that anytime we have too much of, a, of anything, it can become a not so good thing for us. What's the reality <laughs> around soy and estrogen response? Mm-hmm. Is that like a real thing? Yeah, so it goes back and forth. It is a phytoestrogen. So sometimes you hear the research is like, soy can cause estrogen problems. And you know, uh, if you have a history of breast cancer, avoid it. And then you hear other times where it's like, well, it's great for bone health and you actually should be eating it. And this is something that 
anytime nutrition research becomes extreme one way or another, you're probably safer to take the middle road and to be like, okay, hold up. And the reality is, is like, we have to check in what's true for you. It is a weak phytoestrogen, uh, which means that yes, it can stimulate your estrogen receptors, but you know, if you're eating it in moderation, you're having it every now and again, probably not going to be too big of an issue for you. But if it's something where it's like, you have your soy milk latte, then you have a tofu scramble, then you have a tofu burger, then you eat chocolate that also has soy in it and like all of these things, that may be overloading the system. So again, you know, the best way to know is to actually just test it, pull it out of your diet, bring it back in and pay attention to every symptom because it might be gut. Most of the time it's not. Most of the time it's like, oh, my head, like maybe I'm having brain fog, maybe I'm having migraines, maybe it's my skin, maybe I'm really irritable. That's the thing about our immune system. So when we have these emotional swings, like you were talking about, that can be your gut, yeah, but it also can be immune mediated. So think about when we get sick. So you get a virus, how do you feel? Irritable, you wanna quarantine yourself, you wanna stay away from people. That's actually an, an evolutionary adaptation to save the other people around you. Like you quarantine, you're not gonna spread a communicable disease. And so these interleukins, which are the chemical messengers of the immune system, absolutely do impact our mood. Okay, so that gets us to vegetables. What about yeah. some proteins, some fats? What are good mm -hmm. sources for that stuff? Yeah, so when it comes to fat, we do wanna have variety, but we wanna avoid things like hydrogenated fats. Anything, again, if the chemist made it, you probably don't want to eat it because mama nature, she don't get it wrong very often, but humans, we get it wrong a lot. And then it's like generations later that we're like, oh, what did we do? So when it comes to fats, I like to look at whole food fats. So egg yolks, getting uh, avocados coming in, eating nuts and seeds. So bringing those in part of your diet, maybe it's part of seed cycling or you're just adding them. I think seeds are such a great economical and nutrient dense way to really boost your nutrition. Mm -hmm. Getting other foods like cold water fish in, so wild caught salmon, sardines, mackerel, these fatty fish, great sources of omega-3 fatty acids. You had all worried about uh, metal, heavy metal. Of course metals, we are, know. right? What, uh, what, how do we steer that game with fish? Yeah, smaller the fish, the better. That's what we've come to understand. So like I grew up in we ate shark and swordfish and my son's not gonna eat those things because that's just the reality of the state of the planet right now. Uh, so in that getting small fish, this is definitely the best way to go. If you are a vegan or vegetarian, uh, they often, you know, to get omega-3s, they opt for algae we ha or they'll go with flax. And the thing we have to understand is that as women especially, we actually require our own natural estrogen to make the conversion from plant-based omegas into the EPA and DHA that we use. So it's anti-inflammatory, great for the brain. So if you're on hormonal birth control though, you're not making your own estrogen. And if you're inflamed and you're having mood symptoms, you may very well need to start thinking about going with a fish oil. So with those fats, uh, the other thing is being, bringing in grass-fed butter, coconut oil. So that's the healthy fats. 
When it comes to animal proteins, I always tell people let's choose grass-fed as often as possible. Make sure that it's not just muscle meats. We want to bring in our offal or our organ meats, so things like... What is it that the organ meats have? So this is one of those, like mm -hmm. I'm super fascinated by the carnivore diet. Yeah, yeah. And like I want to know... Right now everybody's raising their hand and volunteering. We need to do yeah. the research. I'm like yes. because there's an ethical dilemma perhaps of researching that diet. Because you think that it could be potentially that bad for people? If it is, right? If it is, that's an ethical consideration. Right. So sometimes when we don't have the research we want, like a lot of studies on pregnant women, mm. they're not there. Like on plan B, taking that in pregnancy, the research isn't there. Mm. Why? Because ethically, like we have to pause. And to that, if people are voluntarily saying, I'm going to eat carnivore diet, let's study them. Or at least, I mean, if we can get that N of one, that's better than the N of none. And it can start answering some of the questions that we have. The carnivore diet, I find really fascinating. People keep asking me, like, are you going to recommend it? And I'm like, as of right now, I feel like I don't have enough uh, information to make that you know, educated recommendation. And at the same time, I have patients who have tried it for short periods of time have gotten benefits in terms of like gut improvements. I mean, we've seen inflammation improvements. And to that, I'm like, okay. Well, that's interesting. Let's continue to monitor. Now they're bringing in foods they didn't tolerate before. Now they do tolerate it. So it's something that I'm, I'm always like, that's interesting. Okay, let's monitor it. Like I don't, I don't subscribe to this idea that we need to be putting beliefs on uh, diet, which, you know, religion, politics, and diet come with their own belief systems. Yes. And I really think we just have to stay curious. I mean, that's what science is. It's humble and it's curious. Mm. It's willing to always be wrong and to prove yourself wrong. I mean, that's really what you set out to do is like, am I wrong? Like, can I prove that I'm wrong in this and that there is something else going on? Otherwise, you're not being objective. Now you're being biased. Yeah. Humble and curious. I like that a lot. So you brought up the pill a mm -hmm. minute ago. Talk about an endocrine disruptor. Hmm. Talk to me about that. The mate selection thing in your book oh. is so interesting. Man. <clears throat> so walk us through what that whole effect is, why we should care, how it mm -hmm. plays out. This is where men really need to pay attention in this conversation as well. I think a lot of the time men are like, birth control, I don't have to worry about that. And I'm like, mm. but it depends like on when you <laughs> met her on how your relationship's going to go. Mm. So. We've known for quite some time, when you place a woman on hormonal birth control, it actually disrupts who she's attracted to. And they've done these studies with scent, right? We like to conveniently forget things like sense of smell when it comes to like mate attraction. We think like, we're, we're way more evolved in that. And yet it very much comes down to interacting with scent and, and what we see. So all the senses are involved. Now, MHC, major histocompatibility complex. This is something we can actually pick up in pheromones that tell us about the genetics and the immune system of our mate. So when you smell that MHC, you're looking for somebody who is genetically dissimilar to you as possible. So genetic diversity, that's the name of the game, right? We actually have laws that protect us <laughs> <laughs> so that we make sure we keep that genetic diversity. And that is how we help create the most robust immune system for baby. Yet while you're on hormonal birth control, you actually select for a mate who's more similar to you genetically. So like your cousin, mm -hmm, right? That's the, that's the point where everybody's like, ew. And researchers believe why we do that is because that, if the birth control pill is, or birth control in general is mimicking 
us in a pregnancy state, then we would want to select for our family, right? To be around our family, people who would protect us. Except that that's not really how tribes used to work. And our body has different hormones when we're pregnant. And a lot of people believe, oh, it only affects your reproductive system. Well, it actually works on your brain. That's the level it works on. So the primary mechanism to, sh to shut down ovulation is to stop your brain from talking to your ovaries. So whenever people dismiss like mood symptoms or what is going on in your head as it's in your head, I'm like, well, yeah, because like you're taking birth control. That's, it's, it, there's receptors in your brain. There's receptors all over your body for these hormones, for your natural hormones and for these synthetic ones, which is why we see that birth control has such a far-reaching impact, every single system in the body, because they're all set up to interact with our hormones. Now, with mate selection, so the other way it goes is that they've actually done studies with um, exotic dancers, um, strippers for lack of a better term. <laughs> and in that, what they found is if you are on hormonal birth control, you make less money. Your tips less. So Men actually are picking up on that. If you're ovulating, a naturally cycling female, you make a lot more money when you're ovulating, which makes sense because you're plumper. Like your hormones are stimulating all of your curves. Like even your fine lines and wrinkles start to go away a bit. There's not going to totally reverse. And, and men can pick up on that. And when, you know, you're on your period, you may make less money. And so there's these cyclical and these hormonal changes that happen. They change our appearance. They also change our sense of smell. I've had men write me and say, I always thought I was a weirdo because I could tell like when women were ovulating, like I just I would be attracted to them and I could smell it. And like, I've had partners and I'm like, no, because you're an animal. And that's like what animals do. Now, where it gets really interesting in the research is when we start to look at the studies that have been done with women on and off the pill and what they do with males' faces. So researchers brought women into a room, bunch of screens, said alter every face on the screen to make it more attractive to you. Men and women's faces coming up. And they put them on birth control, bring them back three months later. And what they found is that, well, originally they made the faces more masculine so think Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. But once put on birth control, actually make the faces more feminine. That's so crazy. Isn't that crazy? So they alter the faces to look more feminine. Now, that's just how women, so we know it changes sense of smell, the partner that you're picking. And also change, we're changing the face. And so we're wanting a man who looks more feminine. And interestingly, how we select the criteria, what we select men on, like on a logical level, is different. And that is when you're on hormonal birth control, you actually select for a man who is smart and makes money and less about what he looks like, which once you come off, that flips in terms of the priority. Now, this is where I'm like, you know, cue Kanye West, like she's a gold <laughs> digger. No, 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 no. Evolutionarily speaking, she's selecting for the mate that will ensure the survival of her offspring. Mm. And in this day and age, when we shut down the detection of the MHC complex, we shut down that primal, that animal self, we default to, is he smart and does he make money? Okay, great. That will ensure the survival of my offspring. But when you come off of birth control, if that's how you selected your mate, now how he looks becomes much more important. And while hormonal birth control can tank your libido, cause pain with sex, uh, painful orgasms, if you can actually have an orgasm, it's sometimes painful. Um, when you come off, women actually report higher levels of sexual dissatisfaction. 
And research believes it's because of that attraction to their mate. And because now the way their mate looks is more important to them. Now, does that mean that if you come off of birth control, you're just going to get a divorce? Maybe. If you, <laughs> maybe. Because research has shown that there, you're more likely to initiate divorce as a woman when you're coming off of hormonal birth control. And by the way, we don't have research on if you're in a same-sex relationship of like what happens. These are all based on, because presumably, right, why do you take birth control? To not get pregnant by a male counterpart, except that more than half of women now are using it for symptom management. So mm. it's not actually just for pregnancy prevention. But the mate selection stuff is so fascinating to me. And just the fact that birth control can you know, alter our behavior. So now questions are starting to come up. So does it actually alter our community and our ability to form relationships and bonds? Talk about a huge determinant of health, mm. having people around you. Does it impact the way that we mother? Is that a possibility? And I also think we need to be asking these questions. Um, just in the 2019, Scientific American has this article coming out talking about birth control, and Dr. Elizabeth Kissling in there stated, you know, long-term menstrual suppression via hormonal birth control is the largest and longest uncontrolled study we've ever had, 100%. So instead of saying, this is inconvenient, because believe me, doing 10 years on the pill, it's inconvenient for me to have written this book to discover the things that I've discovered. Like I, There were times where I was doing ugly cries about like, oh my God, what did I do to myself? And I didn't know. And yeah, I didn't know. So if you didn't know... You just don't waste time judging yourself. Like you need to take that step forward. Great, that's good data to have. Now, what can we do moving forward? But I completely understand like these, I mean, I, I get wanting to be the ostrich that sticks your head in the sand and just acts like the predator's not there. You still could get eaten though. Like not the best way forward. And really that's what I'm calling for is that we need to one, start believing women's stories. Two, start validating them with science. And three, Stop dismissing and being so flippant and being like, well, you should be so lucky and grateful to have access to birth control. Just take it. Don't ask any questions and like, you know, just be thrilled to have it. Yeah, I am thrilled to have it. I'm a first generation college student. I'm the first woman in my family to not get pregnant before my 20s. Like these are huge things. I can be simultaneously grateful and also skeptical. Like I can ask the questions and also advocate for education and access. Like, and it's this either or where I think that, I mean, humans just love to do that though, right? They're like, it's black or it's white. You're this camp or you're that camp. And that's where I think I'm very frustrating for people because I'm like, it depends. Maybe it's best for you, maybe it's not. And really where I wanna see science going is stop dismissing women. I mean, like with the mood stuff, women have been complaining about this since the introduction of hormonal birth control. And we still see people saying, mm -mm, not real. Birth control doesn't cause depression or anxiety, therefore not real. We may never have a study that says causation. Causation is difficult, but we do have correlation. We do have studies showing that teenagers are at higher risk of suicide when they start hormonal birth control. What I advocate and when I teach other clinicians is that if you know this and she's getting birth control without her parents knowing, now, if her parents know, great, have a conversation with mom or dad, tell them what to look out for. But, you know, we do give uh, young women birth control without their parents knowing. I wouldn't advocate against that, uh, but I would advocate that doctors follow up. If we know the peak of suicide is within two months, 
have someone call her at four weeks, have someone call her at eight weeks, do a mini mental health screening before she starts birth control and follow up and see where she's at. Have her tell her best friend, listen, if I start dodging your text messages, you notice I'm not posting on social. I don't wanna talk about that cute boy. I don't care about anything anymore. Please get me to the doctor, something's wrong. Like we can actually save women's lives by educating them better and helping them be informed to know when to go to their doctor. We can't afford to lose another woman to a side effect that we could have been in the know on and we need to stop arguing whether or not she's telling the truth. We need to start asking the question of why her and not her. Why does one woman get the IUD and she feels like it's the best thing and her PMS and her PMDD are gone, her mood symptoms are gone, and another woman gets it and now she has depression. And one woman starts the pill and now, you know, this is like the best, you know, pseudo period she's ever had and she's, you know, getting more done in life and she's feeling amazing. And yet another woman, she can't even get out of bed. Like why? How can we screen better? How can we educate better? How can we ensure that we are first doing no harm and doing the best thing for the person sitting across from us? And so that really has to begin with believing women and recognizing that we don't have all the information that we need. Yes, yes. And I really can hear you like getting passionate and animated. Your whole book reads like that. Uh, which is really incredible. Where can people find out more about you, get a hold of the book? Yeah, my main hub is drbrighton.com, and that's Brighton like the sun, not like the jewelry. Uh, that's my main hub. You can find the book there and anywhere else they sell books. And then if you ever want to play, I'm usually on Instagram. <laughs> Amazing. Um, if you were going to have people make one change to their life that would have the biggest impact on their health, what change would you have them make? Mm. Unapologetically love yourself and set your boundaries and hold them strong. Because I think that so much of what I see, especially in women's health, it starts with doing everything for everyone else first. Mm. Mind you, the whole species probably wouldn't be here if women didn't have a propensity to do that. But also feeling like somehow we're not worthy. We're not worthy of love. We're not worthy of these things. And so loving yourself fiercely and never apologizing for the boundaries you need to maintain so that you can be your whole self. Because that's what we need more people in this world really standing in their power so we can get the change that we absolutely need. Nice. I love that. Guys, she does take a very holistic approach, which I found really, really interesting and super useful. And speaking of useful, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Thank you guys so much for watching and being a part of this community. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. You're going to get weekly videos on building a growth mindset, cultivating grit, and unlocking your full potential.